A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult, not impossible, for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a wonderful season opener for you today as we look back at 2023 and forward into 2024 for both the planet and the show. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Yes, 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 we are finally back after a long break, and I am so excited for this season. While we have done some great things thus far, I'm confident this season is going to be a huge step forward. And to put it another way, take everything we've done in the first three seasons and think of it kind of like a simple graham cracker, a bit of chocolate, and a big old marshmallow, all tasty in their own right. But add a bit of heat and put them all together, and voila, you have that magical creation we all know as s'mores. Well, that's what this season is going to be like. Not the sticky mess bit, of course. Rather, the magical part when you sit back and go, wow, I'm really enjoying this. But enough about food. Let's do a recap of 2023 and take a look at what the 2024 South of Two Degrees season holds. When we ended last season, there was one major thing we left off with, heat and the exacerbating causes. Now, the fascinating bit is what we discussed in May, compiled directly from the scientists that studied it, got picked up by many newspapers and media centers later in the summer. In fact, one paper in Arizona basically used our show verbatim. Now, did they cite us? Hell no, but that's fine. It broadens the climate conversation, which is one of our main goals here at South of Two Degrees. And as we look back, 2023 hit researchers' predictions of being the hottest year in human record. So let's look at the most notable events, including an analysis of the good, the bad, and the ugly of COP28. So let's start with those forces briefly that we discussed last spring, since it's been a hot minute. For one, El Nino has had a big impact, and our show on it is coming in the next couple weeks. So for now, we'll just leave it at that. Now, second was the Tonga volcano. Now, while the eruption happened on January 15th of 2022, the effects will be lasting for several more years. And this has been an especially fun one to discuss, as I've had a fair amount of people question this, as volcanoes are often thought to ultimately have a cooling effect due to the dust and ash, not a heating one. What made this volcano unique in modern history was the fact that it was an underwater volcano that erupted with explosive force about 150 meters below the ocean surface. Now, this sent a 300-mile-wide plume of water vapor 25 miles straight up into the stratosphere, according to measurements taken from NASA's Aura satellite. How much water, you ask? Well, great question. It's roughly the equivalent to 10% of the total water volume normally in the atmosphere. And to put that another way, 
Imagine the entire world population standing within a 300-mile circle and every woman, man, and child tossing 18.35 liters, or what's that, about 4.85 gallons of water into the air. Now, we know from previous episodes, water vapor is a potent greenhouse gas, but while it's typically short-lived and regionally impactful because of the injection into the stratosphere, it is predicted to have a global impact for several years. In fact, according to a paper published in January of 2023 by Jenkins et al., it had roughly a 0.035 degrees C impact on global temperature. Now, further warming came last year from the coming peak of the about 11-year solar cycle. But before the climate deniers latch onto this, the impact is small and it's in line with 20th century averages. Now, Third is the lasting impacts from cleaning up our act. And by that, I mean the positive and negative impacts of the 2020 rule from the International Maritime Organization. That rule reduced the sulfur content in fuel by 86%. And while this did reduce pollution, it also reduced particulate matter or PMs that have been reflecting solar radiation. And with the reduction, we have seen an impact on temps of a few hundredths of a degree with the carbon brief estimating a global impact of approximately 0.05 degrees C by 2050. So keep that in mind the next time you buy something that has bits made in a couple countries, assembled in a third, and shipped to you all shiny and new in your home country. How's that for a little climate guilt for you? Okay, Fourth was the dust clouds off of Africa, which I'll just point you to our season closer for an explanation here as it's super fascinating. And fifth, a significant reduction in sea ice. Now, to understand why sea ice temperatures matter, here's a little experiment folks can try in a region that is currently getting snow. And that's not actually a lot of the U.S. as we're seeing summer temperatures here in February right now. But anyway, I digress. Scrape one spot clear of snow on the blacktop, your driveway, or road first thing in the morning. And for goodness sakes, don't do this if cars are around. And then just leave another bit covered with snow. Now come back just before things start to cool in the evening. The exposed bit will be warmer and will have expanded in size. Now I know you're saying, yeah, Brian, I learned that in preschool. But here's my point. While you learn that at a young age, I doubt you thought of it in terms of sea ice. As sea ice lessens, more ocean is exposed to direct sunlight. With the water being darker, it warms quicker and thus prevents sea ice from forming for longer. You see the reinforcing feedback loop? Cool. Well, not cool, but you get what I mean. Now, in addition to the aforementioned items... 2023, in all its glory, is best summed up by Berkeley Earth in their annual report where they note some significant points. One, new national record high annual averages were set in an estimated 77 countries, including Bangladesh, Brazil, China, Germany, Japan, and Mexico. Two, record annual average warmth occurred for both the land average and ocean averages. And third, record warmth occurred in most ocean basins, including a once-in-a-century level of warmth in the North Atlantic. In effect, 
29% of the global population, or 2.3 billion people, experienced record high temps in 2023. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Well, guess what, folks? 2024 is likely to smash 2023. But before we dive into the future, let's look back at COP28 and take a look at why it was rife with both positives and negatives. Now, for those just getting into the climate space, COP28 stands for the 28th Annual Conference of Parties. And this is where the Paris Accord was agreed to back in 2016. You know, the one where world governments continue to hold it up in speeches, but basically ignore it with their actions. That one. Anyway, the big issue going into COP28 was threefold, and it all centered squarely around fossil fuels. First, it was held in the United Arab Emirates. Why does it matter who hosts? Well, the UAE is a petrostate, or one that derives a significant portion of its revenue from fossil fuels. That said, tracking down an exact percentage proved to be a bit tricky. According to UAE's U.S. Embassy, 30% of its revenue is derived from hydrocarbons, while the International Monetary Fund estimated it to be roughly 60% in its 2023 report. Either way, it's hard to talk about reducing the impacts of climate change from such a stage. I mean, imagine if you spoke on reducing forest fires and then old growth forest, and then after you spoke, you went, lit up a cigarette, and then tossed it into the dry underbrush. It kind of kills your message and makes you look full of it, doesn't it? Well, the second issue was the number of fossil fuel lobbyists that had access to the conference. Now, at COP27, there was a huge uproar because 636 fossil fuel representatives were present. Well, at COP28, that increased by nearly threefold to 2,456. And those were just the ones that were known. Pretty sad, right? Well, unfortunately, it proved a bit difficult to find out which countries those lobbyists were from. You know, that's not a phone call or email folks like to answer. However, let me pose this to you. The reason they are officially permitted to attend by the UNFCCC is to allow for an inclusive approach and provide a platform for all voices. What do you think? I believe we are naive if we think putting negotiations on addressing anthropogenic climate change in the hands of these folks will benefit anything but their own bottom lines. And why should they care, to be honest? They'll all be dead before the worst of it and will have made their money. Ah, humanity. Oh, we truly struggle to see beyond our own life and think generationally. Anyway, Finally, and most significantly, the chair of the conference was Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOC. And while he spoke about a transition to clean energy, his true colors came out during the conference when he said, quote, Please help me. Show me a roadmap for a phase-out of fossil fuels that will allow for sustainable socioeconomic development unless you want to take the world back into caves, end quote. Back into caves, people. Anyway, 
Oh, and he also said that there was, quote, no science that supported the need to phase out fossil fuels in order to achieve the Paris goal of limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. Now, while I disagree vehemently with this, and it is completely infuriating, take his perspective, as hard as that is, just for a moment. Now, before the commercial production of oil in the 1960s, Dubai was a small and fairly insignificant trading hub outside of a small regional economy, primarily known for pearl diving and fishing. The transition to a petrostate has allowed it to transform from those humble aspects into a city of wealth playing a global role in finance, technology, and real estate, which also gives rise to tourism. So from Al Jaber's limited personal perspective, sure, moving away from fossil fuels means a significant regression from the thriving metropolis that Dubai is today without drastic changes. Now, does that make it right for the world? Hell no. But from a man thinking purely of himself and his country, I kind of get it. A person who feels cornered will always fight, even if they are blatantly in the wrong as Al Jaber is. So on to the actual conference. Let's start with the good. It actually began with a bang and a significant one at that. On the very first day of the conference, a historic agreement was made on the operationalization of a loss and damage fund. Effectively, that's a slush fund to assist developing countries cope with the effects of climate change caused by wealthier nations. While this is an important step we have been long fighting for, it's only a piece and is treating the symptoms, not the cause. Now, what makes this fascinating is that it happened so quickly on day one. I mean, when was the last time you had a conference that you decided something critical in the first 5% of the time? Seriously, it takes a far from insignificant time for just my wife and I to agree on schedules of who's picking up the kids when and what car and at what time. And that's two of us that are damn near aligned in lockstep. Now, try that, but add in three quarters of a billion dollars and 200 plus people all from diverse backgrounds. Don't get me wrong, it's a huge step if countries that pledged money actually follow through, but there was and still is concern that it was a pre-negotiated agreement solely to be able to give Al Jaber and the UAE a win, so to speak, and stifle criticism of their hosting. So let's just hope this actually comes to fruition. Anyway, another big aspect was a move by Colombia. Really? Colombia? You're saying actually, yes, because Colombia became the first Latin American country calling for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. And it's a significant move that'll set the stage and precedence for other nations to follow. Further, this was the first COP to include a food day that resulted in 154 nations signing a declaration for sustainable agriculture, resilient food systems, and climate action. Now, this is significant because it marked for the first time 
a move to formally integrate agriculture and food systems into the country's NDCs or nationally determined contributions. Okay, now let's go rapid fire on some of the pledges that weren't as broadly reported on, but were still important nonetheless. Uh, booster renewables and nuclear. Now, this set a new target to triple installed capacity to at least 11 terawatts by 2030 and boost global energy efficiency. And 22 nations endorsed an agreement to triple nuclear. Uh, Brazil helped launch a new fund called Tropical Forest Forever, and this has a goal of about $250 billion to provide finance to help maintain trees in 80 tropical countries. And also after a landmark deal at another cop, uh, yeah, there are a bunch of different ones, but that's not the point, so I won't confuse you. Anyway, at this other cop, they agreed to a nature deal to protect the rich biodiversity of our planet. And at COP28, the climate one, they formally recognized climate change posed a threat to biodiversity protection. I know, I know. You're probably saying, well, of course. But remember, these are governments. They are not nearly as quick thinking as you are. Now, in a statement, they said, quote, continued loss and degradation of nature increases climate vulnerability. Amazing, it's taken 28 years to get to this moment. 28 years. Anyway, uh, there was a first ever health day at COP28 where an agreement was made by 123 signatories to formally recognize the connection between climate change, greenhouse gases, and global health. And finally, there were agreements to cut emissions from both heavy industry and refrigerators and air conditioners. Seriously, these aren't worth diving into here, and I doubt you really want to know more anyway. Okay, now for those who followed the conference closely, you're probably thinking, I left out the biggest things. Two of them specifically. Well, I didn't. I was just saving them for now, as while there are highlights for sure, they also kick off the bad of the conference. All right, first is the Global Methane Pledge. This was an amazing agreement that started back in COP26, at least on the surface, to cut methane emissions. And before, almost all the focus had been on carbon dioxide. But as you know from several past episodes of South of Two Degrees, methane, or the greenwash name natural gas, is a powerful, albeit short-lived greenhouse gas. Now, 155 countries signed up to commit to reduce methane emissions by 30% in the next six years to include a reduction in flaring. And that's the giant flame you see in a natural gas facility when you drive by. However, why this agreement is seen as leaking into the bat of the conference, though, see what I did there? is it's economically beneficial to cut leaks as they reduce profits. And by most measures, the 30% reduction could easily be achieved by just stopping those leaks. So in truth, this does not require any reduction in production. Now, circling back to the beginning of our conversation, the crux of the conference and what could possibly set the stage for COP28 to be looked back on as a turning point was a global agreement to transition away from fossil fuels. 
amazing, right? Well, the optimist in me, yes, you can still be an optimist after years of dealing with anthropogenic climate change and humanity's underwhelming response. But anyway, the optimist wants to sing in the rain about this. It's absolutely amazing. We have finally crossed this bridge. However, the researcher in me, though, has some concerns. The reason why I say that is while the agreement was the first ever at a COP to recognize the role of fossil fuels, again, yeah, it took nearly three decades for this to be agreed upon, it was rife with loopholes that could potentially undermine the entire thing. The main bit is that the text failed to include the term phase out and instead said transition. Why does that matter? This suggests that fossil fuels still have a significant role to play over the next decades and allows for workarounds and political posturing without real action. Yes, the goal is still net zero by 2050, but if you think that's a good idea, be sure to check out the net zero episode from last season. Okay, so there you have it. A fast look back at 2023 and COP28. What about 2024, you ask? Well, that's yet another great question, and let's dive into it. From a global perspective, 2024 will be hot. (laughs) Big surprise, right? Now, I'm saying 2024 is going to make us wish for 2023 temps. Could I be wrong? Sure. But if you look at data from NOAA on a global sea surface temperature, you'll see a disturbing trend. For context here, beginning on March 14th of last year, SSTs started to surpass all recorded temps, and this trend continued through the rest of the year, never coming back below the hottest year on record. In fact, on August 25th of 2023, it was 0.3 degrees C hotter than the highest August temperature. So how does that compare to 2024? Well, thus far, we've been bouncing between 0.4 degrees C and 0.5 degrees C hotter, hotter than 2023. Yeah, and it's only the end of February. What about air temps? Well, when you use the 1979 to 2000 as a baseline, last year at this time, a global air temperature anomaly was sitting at about 0.6 degrees C. This year, that's 1.2 degrees C. So yeah, this year is going to be hot. Now, what about the show? What does the 2024 season hold for us? Well, we have a lot of great content coming your way. And this season, we'll look at El Nino, as promised, uh, break down how shared resources work, deep dive into how AI is being used in the science communication space, and talk to one of the leading minds in that research and bring you another collaboration interview with Kate Bagby over at the uh, Guilty Greeny podcast and dive into what we teased at the end of last season, an original literature review and interpretation of how climate communication can actually drive action, something I've been working on for at least the last seven months. Oh, and a lot more. Now, I want to end with a quote from The Strangest Loop that I read over the break and have since adopted it as kind of a personal motto. 
No matter if you're thinking of an environmental project, struggling to write a book, have a hard workout you need to do, or just kind of a life-changing event that needs to be done, I think you'll find this as helpful as I did. Preparing to do the thing isn't doing the thing. Scheduling time to do the thing isn't doing the thing. Making a to-do list for the thing isn't doing the thing. Telling people you're going to do the thing isn't doing the thing. Messaging friends who may or may not be doing the thing isn't doing the thing. Writing in a banger tweet about how you're going to do the thing isn't doing the thing. Hating on yourself for not doing the thing isn't doing the thing. Hating on other people who have done the thing isn't doing the thing. Hating on the obstacles in the way of doing the thing isn't doing the thing. And fantasizing about all of the adoration you'll receive once you do the thing isn't doing the thing. Reading about how to do the thing isn't doing the thing. Reading about how other people did the thing isn't doing the thing. Reading this essay isn't doing the thing. The only thing that is doing the thing is doing the thing. Now, whatever it is sitting there waiting for you to do in life, just get out and do the thing. As for me, well, the next episode will drop in two weeks. But for now, that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. To each of you listening in the nearly 100 countries where we have active listeners, thank you. You continue to inspire us here at South of Two Degrees with your emails and all the work you are doing to personally fight anthropogenic climate change. Keep those emails coming as we always welcome your feedback. And remember, you can find show notes and direct links to all the papers we talked about on the show over on the website, southof2degrees.org. Now, aside from checking out the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, X, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees. <laughs>